Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome to Hardball. My name is Chris Domino. This is Episode 4, Lifetime Kansas City Royal and Hall of Famer George Brett. Thanks for finding us if this is your first time listening. Thanks if you've come back after a previous visit. For those of you who are new to what we're doing here, let me give you a quick how and why of Hardball itself. About 20 years ago, I set out to speak to some of the greats of the game for a local radio pregame show in Atlanta. My first guest was Duke Snyder an homage to my father's Brooklyn roots and his love of the Dodgers. I was born there, and through osmosis, I became a fan of a team that had moved to L.A. six years before I was even born, and that was followed up by my lifelong love of the game. Hardball is not about numbers. It was never meant to be an analysis, let alone an over-analysis of anything. It's not about even interviewing these men and women. It's about creating an environment that is conducive to conversation. You know, the path to the major story that most often starts at a kitchen table, parents, a scout, some numbers pass back and forth, And for the most part, that first trip away from home to navigate their way in a man's world as a teenager. All of these conversations have a story. While I can't tell you what I had for lunch yesterday, I can remember something from every one of these. Here's a quick George Brett rundown and a little fill in the blanks. George Brett is in my baseball wheelhouse. When I called to set this up, I told him so. His debut in 1973 and certainly more so his breakout year in 75 put me at 12 years old. And a second-place finish in 75 set up what would be an incredible but certainly frustrating six-year run for Royals fans. I watched those postseason games play out on local TV in New York, New Jersey, and couldn't help but be caught up in the drama and the dichotomy between the big personality payroll Yankees teams and the Midwest small market built through their own system Royals. While the Yankees had bigger names, it was clear very quickly that George Brett was a witch, and his bat was his wand. He looked like a ball player, the kind of guy they would actually create in a lab. Good-looking, better-looking swing, big smile, and a want, and an ability to knock you down on your ass. When you speak to certain guys, you want to be prepared, but not cliched. I'll tell you of a few minutes we had after we got done that told me I might have pulled it off. As I was getting ready to thank him, he beat me to the punch. Said he enjoyed it, but went a step further. Thanks, appreciate it. And I had asked, appreciate what? No pine tar, no hemorrhoids. Before we get to our time together, I want you to hear George from a sit-down he gave as he looked back at his quest to hit 400 in 1980, a season in which, listen to this, he crossed over the 400 barrier on August 17th. And for perspective, Rod Carew in 1977 dropped below 400 on July 11th and never got back over. Man had a 30-game hitting streak end, and his average went up. From May 30th to August 30th, he hit 469 with 61 hits with five, five, five strikeouts with runners in scoring position. Here's George talking about his run at that hallowed number. I remember in 1980, I knew I was going to get a hit. I knew I had a 30-game hitting streak, and, and I knew that first at-bat I was going to get hit, get a hit every, every time up. And probably 60% of the time I did. 
But those other 40, I hit the ball awfully hard. You know, it's just a matter of them being in the right spot. When I went over the 400 mark with six weeks to go in the season, there was a big media rush. Everybody came rushing into my locker after the game. Do you think you can hit 400? I mean, from 50, 60 microphones and newspaper people. And, and I'm going, hey, that's stupid. I have six weeks to go in the season. I'm not even going to think about it. And I didn't. I, mean, I, I laughed at their faces. Well, for the next month, I was still over 400. Now, after talking about it and talking about it for a month and with only two weeks to go in the season, I made one mistake. I went out and tried to hit 400 rather than just going out there and, and, and playing their little game. That's when I needed Dr. Harrison to call me. He should have called me then and said, George, what were you doing the last month? Keep it up. Don't change. And I really let the pressure get to me, I think, where before it never did. It didn't matter if we won the game. We had a 20-game lead on the second-place team with two weeks to go. So it really didn't matter. So I should have been able to focus better. I remember in 1981 when I went to spring training, I said, okay, now I'm prepared for it to happen. Now I'm going to go out and hit 400 because I'll know how to react a little bit better in this situation. Well, I hit 89 points lower, but I did hit over 300. I hit 301. And it was a struggle that last week to hit 300. But I was just able to, you know, put everything aside and go out there and focus basically on my task. And even though I hit 89 points lower, everybody said I had a bad year. I was very pleased with it. I'll give you a rundown of the vitals and two things you need to know before we get to George. 3,154 hits, three batting titles in three different decades, lifetime 305 average, 1,596 RBI, 317 homers, 665 doubles, 137 triples, more walks than strikeouts. The man got 98.2% of the vote in his first year of eligibility, an all-time type number, and he finished second in his own class to Nolan Ryan's 98.8%. That makes it as good a one-two punch as the Hall will ever see. Lastly, that waltz into the Hall of Fame certainly is a credit to natural ability coupled with that want and work ethic. But George himself spoke of another factor, a one-way conversation, actually, that put him over the top to become one of the all-time all-timers. Avrin Fogelman, two years into his time as one of the owners of the Royals, had dinner with George after the 1984 season. To hear both parties tell, perhaps the fire in Brett's belly was out. 20 pounds overweight and coming off the worst year on the back of his baseball card. If George was looking for a congratulations and all you've done type night, it didn't happen. Matter of fact, it was clearly pointed out to George, he was not only the highest paid player on the team, but he spent half the year on the disabled list because he didn't take care of himself. If Brett thought it might be over, his owner didn't. The challenge had been laid out. George Brett did what gamers do and took a very good career to a 98.2% acknowledgement of a great career. Here you go, George Brett. Kansas City Royals. Tim Fortuno's pitch ripped on one hop off over the belt in the right field. And that is number 3,000. I don't like those Yankees still. Just by Gossage. High drive. It deep the right field. It is gone. Three run home run by George Brett into the third tier of Yankee Stadium. Hardball's Legends of the Game. We join another Hall of Famer. He's actually out at the ballpark watching the Royals this afternoon. He is 
fairly new Hall of Famer, George Brett. He does join us tonight. George, how you doing? I'm doing fine in yourself. Well, very good, sir. I do appreciate your time today. Okay. Uh, just a couple of things. I mentioned the Hall of Fame, and certainly a lot of people talk about a lot of incidents and games and moments in your life. I'm assuming when we talk about a culmination, did that day go as planned? or as much as you can actually plan something like that? I don't think you can plan it. It's uh, You're in uncharted water. I don't think you'll ever get the uh, the honor that you get that day. And, um, you know, whenever you experience something like that for the first time, obviously you're in awe of the whole situation. But uh, I think any Hall of Famer, the first thing they do when this when the, their speech is over with, they take a big sigh of relief. <laughs> uh, they wipe their forehead, all the, get all the sweat off their forehead, and they're able to breathe again because it's quite a moment leading up to that speech. Uh, the anticipation of making the speech since January when you announce you're going in up until the end of July when the actual induction is. But uh, it's a sign of relief, uh, just a big sigh of relief once uh, once once that speech is over with. Some guys actually have to wipe their eyes as well. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know if anybody saw. I'm sure just some people watched it last year when um, Bill Mazeroski mm -hmm. got up there. He got about three words out and cried for about ten minutes, and that was it. He, just, he, he said, I, I, I can't do this. It's and, just, and I'm just too emotional. It's, it's going to go down. emotional as, time in your life. Yeah, it's going to go down as one of the most memorable moments, certainly. Yeah, I mean, he got... He got more standing ovations than anybody <laughs> I ever. I thought I thought Nolan Ryan gave a pretty good speech and Robin Young gave a pretty good one. And they, you know they got one standing ovation. Bill Mazeroski got about six. So it was great. How long? I don't know what your plan was when you mentioned. You know, you know, you're going in and you have that few month period to actually write something. Were you one of those guys who wrote, scratched out, rewrote? Did you did you go through some of that heartache? Oh yeah, I uh, it was getting real hectic. The closer the date came to. Uh, the actual induction ceremony, the more things that were going around in Kansas City, the more people wanting to talk to me. Um, and so uh, my wife and my kids and I took off for a week. We went to Bermuda uh, just to get some peace and quiet. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I remember waking up in the mornings at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'd, start just, I'd go for long walks and runs on the beach, and I'd practice what I was going to say. And I was breaking down doing that uh, with nobody even around. So it was, uh, I mean, it was tough. Uh, you, know, you, you try not to leave anybody out. I, I found out afterwards. I forgot to announce some people or, or give credit to some people, but, uh, um, you know, it's the biggest speech you'll ever make in your life, and it's a lot of anticipation leading up to it, and it's, um, it's just something I'm glad. You know, I, I went to the, I've been to every Hall of Fame since, and uh, now I go to the Hall of Fame. It's a lot of fun. That year I was there and getting inducted, it wasn't a lot of fun. <laughs> we'll get back to that speech in a couple of seconds, but one of the things we like to do on this portion of the show is um, you've talked about, and obviously your brother was a major leaguer before you, but the negotiation, if it can be called that, when you were actually signed, by Kansas City. Can you describe how that went? We've heard a whole lot of versions, but most of the time it comes down to a kitchen table, a father, and a couple of looks that shoot across the table that either say things are going well or they're not going well here. Well, I remember when I was, I was drafted, it's uh, 29th pick in the country, second round pick out of high school by the Royals. And um, and uh, the uh, scout came over, Rosie Gilhausen, uh, came over and offered $11,000. And, you know, my father had been through this before. My brother Ken in 1966 was the fourth player taken in the draft, and he got about $80,000. And it just so happened in 1971 when I was drafted, uh, the player that the Royals took in the first round, uh, as soon as the Royals walked into his off into his home, he said, I want $40,000 in a new car, and I'm not signing till then. And <laughs> I think on the normal circumstances, uh, he, the Royals probably would offer him about 100000 or 90,000, but uh, when they give him 40, it kind of limits what they can give the second round pick, so he kind of screwed everybody behind him. Um, you know, my brother Bobby said it best a couple days later. He said, if you think you're that good, you know, what are you worried about the money you went now for? There's a lot more money to be made in baseball, and, you know, he brought up the point where I was signing with an expansion club, and they didn't have a rich farm uh, farm system and tradition, and there'd probably be a good chance for me, if I was that good, um, to, to move right up through the ranks, and uh, little did I 
know at that time, but I'd spent two and a half years in the minor leagues and spent 20 in the big leagues. So he was right on, on all occasions. Shortstop, correct, when you got drafted? Uh, when I got drafted, yeah. But, uh, you know, I didn't have the range for that. And, you know, I was 5'10", 160, once, uh, well, I think I was 5'10", 170. And um, by the time I made it to the major leagues, I was still growing quite a bit. I grew a bunch my senior year in high school. I went into high school and I uh, was 4'11 and weighed 99 pounds and uh, graduated at 5'10", 170, I think. And by the time I got to the big leagues, I was six foot one ninety five and when I retired I was six one two oh five. So, you know, I was still growing. I was a late bloomer. What's the plus and what's the minus of perhaps having a, a brother, an older brother who paved the way into the major leagues? Well, I think it was a big plus. I had a chance to see what major league baseball was like. I had a chance when I was in thirteen years old to ride buses with him during the nineteen sixty seven World Series when he was the youngest pitcher ever to pitch in a World Series game. Uh, like I said, he was drafted in 1966 out of high school, and he was pitching in the World Series in 1967. So, um, you know, here I am, a 13-year-old kid, and I'm I'm going to uh, I'm going to games in St. Louis, and I'm riding on the team bus with my older brother, uh, one of my older brothers, um, and I'm sitting with guys like Carl Yaskrzemski, who won the Triple Crown that year. I mean, that was a big he had a big influence on my life, and. Remember when I was 14 and 15 years old, I'd fly back to Boston for a week and spend a week with him and, uh, during a homestand and go to the park with him and go home with him after games. And um, it was just good to see what baseball was really, you know, really like. And then all of a sudden, when you get a chance to play it, you're not uh, in uncharted waters. You know, you've been there before as an early kid, as a young kid, and and it was uh, it was just quite a memorable experience for you. And I'm assuming the value comes not only from just the game itself, but knowing how to conduct yourself in a locker room and knowing how to walk into a locker room as a young guy. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that's helped the Boons. I'm sure that's helped the Griffies, and I'm sure that's helped everybody who's got the father-son combos going right now in Major League Baseball. I got three young boys. Unfortunately for me, my boys didn't grow up. Uh, uh, you know, they all came after I was retired, uh, or at least one of them. I think when I retired, he was six years or six months old, so he doesn't remember seeing a lot of stuff at the ballpark. But uh, you know, these guys have a tremendous advantage over a lot of people growing up at the ballpark. Hall of Famer George Brett joining us on the Legends of the Game segment. Fact or fiction? Let's just go back to that signing. Um, when Kansas City drafted you, did your dad really throw Rosie Gills, uh, Gilhouse out? House, yeah, the, the first day. House. <laughs> so don't don't ever come don't don't embarrass me like that in front of my son. Get out of here, and, you know, and, and literally pushed him out the out the door. How long did it take for him to come back? Hey, he came back a couple of days. Yeah, and I'm assuming later, not yeah. much not much more yeah, money. Rosie but and my father, they had seen each other at my brother Ken's games. They had seen each other at my brother John's games. They had seen each other at my brother Bobby's games. And being the youngest of four boys in the family, uh, obviously they saw him a lot at my games. And the Royals thought enough of me as a young kid to draft me and and um, you know take a gamble on me and give me twenty five thousand dollars. And you know even even though it's not the money they're talking about today, I mean that. That was a lot of money back then, mm -hmm. and so um, you know, I'm I'm sure my father knew what he what he was doing at that time, but he sure scared the hell out of me. <laughs> George Brett tonight on uh, Hardball Legends of the Game. Now, talk about that class that you went in with, because you, I believe, made note in your speech about 13 years in the big leagues with Nolan Ryan. You never said a word to him, and on the other end of that is a guy named Robin Yount, who you had a lot of association with in the career. Well, I, I I always thought that pitchers' jobs were to get me out, and my job was to knock them out of the game. And I never really got friendly with opposing pitchers on any team unless I played with them on my team. And 
there were guys like Robin Yount, whom I played with, I played against for 20 years, and uh, he was a shortstop for a while. And there are many, many times I knocked him on his rear end trying to break up a double play, and um, you know I would help him up, but um, and he would do the same thing to me at third base, slide in hard on a close play. But I respected the way he played the game of baseball, and was very, very honored to go in with him uh, in the Hall of Fame the same year. One and of the I things agreed, I always thought he was one of the best ball players I ever played against. Well, he said the same about you when I talked to him last month. But one of the other things he noticed was he said, you know, I had a lot of fun playing but it was probably more inward. George had a lot of fun playing, and everybody knew it. Well, yeah, I, I, to this day, I say nobody had more fun playing the game than I did for the 20 years that I played, and not only on the field, but off the field. I mean, I looked forward to coming to the games every day. I was always trying to pride myself on being the first one in the locker room uh, for day games, night games, and always the last one to leave after the game. And and uh, that was the way I, I played the game, and I think that's the way I was brought up through my brothers and, and um, just to respect the game of baseball. And um, as a result, um, you know, things worked out all right for the 20 years that I did play. I would say so. One of the things you mentioned also, respect for players, but you didn't like the New York Yankees. There was no love lost between Kansas City and the Yankees really on any level, correct? No. Uh, well, there was. I had no reason not to dislike them when I was younger or first coming into the big leagues, but... You know, you lose a tough playoff game in 76, you lose a tough playoff series in 77, and then all of a sudden there's a rivalry's begun, and as a result of that, um, you know, to this day, uh, when the Royals play them, <laughs> you know, if the Royals are going to win three games all year, I hope it's against the New York Yankees. Now, that's, uh, that's even in spring training, that's the biggest game of the year for me in spring training when the Royals play the Yankees. An incident in 78 everybody knows about uh, with you and Craig Nettles a play at third base, but people might not know the role that Thurman Munson played in that uh, story. Well, how, did you do all your homework for this? Oh, yeah. I, how do you I, know all this stuff? I, I try to get some of this stuff down because, you know, George, the way I figured it, it's easy to talk about the hemorrhoids. It's easy to talk about the pine tar. You've told that story, and everybody's heard those stories. Uh, I heard this thing about Munson, and I thought it was one of those things that if you have the right attitude, if you play the game the right way, respect is going to come to a player, even on an opposing team that you don't like. Well, Greg Nettles and I are great friends. Um Today, we were great friends for years, but whenever we played against each other, especially when he was wearing a Yankee uniform, I mean, during that two-and-a-half, three-hour period, I mean, I didn't like him, and he didn't like me. And uh, But after the game, I had no problems with him. And in 1978, it uh, was the last game, or 77, I think it was the last game of the playoffs, the fifth game, and I hit a triple my first at-bat, and I was leading off that day against Gidry and hit a triple to right center field. And... And uh, God, I slid in hard and uh, came up and gave him an elbow, and he stepped back and kicked me in the face, and I got up and threw a haymaker at him, and Thurman Munson, the catcher, ran over and jumped on me, on top of me, and covered me up, so nobody goes right in front of the Yankee dugout here in Kansas City, and so uh, they had the third base dugout, and covered me up and said, don't worry, George, I'm not going to let anybody take a cheap shot at you, and um, kind of really saved me in that situation, because I was in, um, I was in, um, you know, I was in some bad, bad, bad area, <laughs> you know, I was right in front of their dugout when all this stuff was coming off. Those guys got out of the dugout a lot quicker than my guys got out of the dugout <laughs> because, it, we, you know, we were a lot closer to the Yankee dugout. So he, he really saved, uh, saved me from getting a good, uh, good rear end kicking. Location, location, location. Yeah. When you're mm -hmm. talking about real estate, you know, you mentioned you hit a triple. Uh, I talked to Tony Gwynn the other day. A lot of people might not know. We were going through the, what's the one fact people might not know about you. He's the all-time San Diego Padres stolen base leader. I think the one thing people might not know about you, you led the American League in triples one year. Um, yeah, 20, 20. I think I did it more than once year. I think I did 15 one year and 20 one year. 1979, I think I had 20 triples. Yeah. Do you think anybody would know that? Uh, I don't think anybody outside Kansas City would. <laughs> 
was that a matter of being a, a good base runner? Because it, it, it's not necessarily speed, but you knew, and, and obviously you got out of the box. and well, you were it, thinking... was a, it was something that I never took for granted. I was one of those guys that prided myself on running hard to first base, and I was one of those guys that prided myself on a, stretching singles and the doubles, and I was one of those guys that prided myself on stretching doubles and the triples. And You put all that together with the ballpark that I played in. It was the hardest ballpark to hit home runs in. Uh, the fences were the biggest. It was astroturf. The field was quick. Um, we had tricky corners. Uh, you take advantage of all those things, and you hit a ball in the gap, and you keep on running. And as a result of that, you can get 20 triples in a year. But so often you watch Major League Baseball games now, and you see a guy hit a ball in the gap, and he knows it's a double, so he jogs to second base. Well, uh, kind of gets me a little red under the shoulder sometimes and, um, and uh, bothers me because a lot of times it could be a triple. Players who have the success and maybe play as long as you played, Cal Ripken's talked about it as well. Do you not need at one moment in your career a guy to come over? And maybe it was Whitey Herzog, and I know there were a lot of people that you thanked, Charlie Lau included. But don't you need somebody, probably a manager, to say, this is who you are, this is what you do for me, and do not worry about anything else. Everything is going to be fine as long as we stick to this plan. Yeah, and that's what Whitey did to me, basically. He got me early in my career. Uh, he got me when I was uh, starting to win batting championships and, uh, you know, moving from... You know, hitting number one or number uh, hitting leadoff or hitting second in the order to say, you know, okay, you're going to hit third every day, and this is what I expect, and don't try to do anything that you're not capable of. Yeah, I think that was uh, very, very important to me. And I think every player somewhere along the line has somebody that kind of puts them in their place and says, this is what we expect out of you. Don't try to do anything more than you're capable of. Maybe more memorable incidents, but that 85 game seven, Rick Oslin, one of the writers for the Dallas Morning News, uh, he actually talked about coming out to the ballpark day of Game 7. Fact or fiction, you were in a cage for, or actually by yourself with uh, a BP pitcher and a kid shagging flies. Were you in a cage for about an hour that day? Uh, I don't think it was an hour. I went to the Chiefs game. The Chiefs had a game across the street, Arrowhead, and um, I went over there for about the first half and uh, came over to the ballpark. The night before, I didn't get any hits. It was the first game, I, first World Series game I never got, got shut out in. and So uh, it was a big game. It was probably the most important game I'd ever played in you know, my life, uh, the seventh game of the World Series. And I just wanted to make sure mentally and physically that I, my stroke was sound and as a result of that, I came out and um, you know probably hit for 20, 25 minutes. Um, had one of the batting practice pitchers throw and had a couple of clubhouse kids shagging. And, you know, it was before, I mean, it was probably 2 o'clock in the afternoon for an 8 o'clock game. So there wasn't a lot of stuff going on at the ballpark. But I just wanted to make sure uh, mentally and physically that I was ready to play. Well, you go 4 for 5 that night. You scored a couple of runs. But did you know coming out of the cage that day that that would be a good night? And I don't know if yeah, there was I mean, such I a thing. Yeah, I felt real comfortable. I mean, it was one of those uh, batting practice sessions where, you know, you hit uh, balls to left field and you hit a lot of line drives in between third and short. And then you a lot of gappers in between th left and center and then a lot of line drives up the middle and just kind of worked my way around the field and ended up pulling the ball and hitting some home runs and and then went back to left and I did it again and once I went once I did two two circuits like that that's how I used to like to take BP I'd start off the left field and work the ball you know around to the right field uh you know and trying to pull the ball a little bit more in certain situations but uh, when I was able to pull the ball and then said okay I'm going back to left and then hit about three line drives to left in a row I said okay I got it and, you know, sometimes that's all you got to say to yourself. I got it. When you go into a game and you're not sure if you're ready mentally and physically, then there's going to be some question marks. But if you go in there and you feel absolutely locked in, confidence that you have, your, your swing and everything is intact, you have a lot more chance to succeed. Again, speaking of guys like Musial and speaking of Gwynn, very different than Ted Williams, who admits he was a he, he said I was a guest hitter. Those guys said, well, I was an educated guest hitter. What, what department, what category would you put yourself in? I was, uh, I was the anticipation hitter. I guessed, or I didn't guess, I anticipated a fastball every pitch. My fundamentals were good. I was able to keep my hands back, my weight back, and wait on the breaking ball. Charlie Lau, a big part of that, I'm assuming? Yeah. 
mentally and physically, or was there a, one area that he was oh, bigger in for you? Both. He gave me, he gave, you got to have success to have the, the mental side of the game and to have confidence. You can't have confidence unless you've been successful. He showed me the success, and with that, I keep the confidence grew. True or false, 300th home run caught by a blind fan? Have you heard that story? Yeah, yeah, in Cleveland. I, I heard about it. I gave him a bat and a jersey for the ball. So And you, you know, did get the ball back. Yeah, the guy was blind when he came in. Better, better, he was a hell of an actor. <laughs> Perhaps looking to the, up the negotiations yeah, the a little bit. Uh, 3,000th hit. 3,000th hit, base hit to right field off uh, uh, Tim Fortuno in California. And last at bat against Texas, I believe, last correct? Last at bat, routine ground ball to the middle. I think if uh, Manny... Oh, Manny Lee was, uh, if it was the seventh game in the World Series, might have been able to get a glove on it, but uh, he missed it by about five feet. I think everybody knew it was my last at-bat, and kind of everybody was on their heels and wasn't really anticipating the ball being hit to him. And uh, sure enough, it was the ball bounced over Hanky's head, ground ball in the center field. They set um, for number 3154 in the last one. One of those moments where you know in fastball, fastball, fastball? Well, the catcher told me. Roger Pudge told me. So well, that helps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, as we finish up with George Bretton, again, very kind of him to spend some time as he's actually watching a Royals game right now. Um, you mentioned your sons and what age they were and how they really didn't see you play. Um, mixed feelings about that, or will tape and video be enough somewhere down the road? No, I think tape and video is enough, and that's no big deal. But, you know, you see so many players that I've played with that had kids at a young age, and they never saw their kids play baseball because mm -hmm. they were always playing. And uh, here I am the assistant hitting coach on two of my son's teams right now. So it's uh, it's fun. I, I go to all the practices I can. I go to all the games I can. And as a result of that, I get the chance to be a part of their life where so many of the guys I played with never got a chance to do that with their kids. And um, and so it's uh, this, this is fun. I mean, this is a lot of fun. Is there a way to ensure that Brett on the back of their jerseys is not going to be something of a burden for them? Uh, yeah, because I'm just going to tell them to do the best they can and have fun and uh, to respect the game. And, um, you know, if it, um, so far, you know, they, they don't know what Dad did. And, you know, they, they know Dad went in the Hall of Fame, but they don't. They, don't, they have no concept of what you know, what I accomplished and what it meant to people and what it meant to me and what it meant to the Royals and things like that. So, you know, I think the older they get, they might, but the older they get, the more of a, of a has-been I will be. And, you know, the, maybe by then the name will kind of have drifted away and the Mike Sweeney's and the Carlos Beltran's would have taken over the Kansas City baseball names. And, you know, they, have a, they can have a, uh, you know, a clear path to make, uh, to, to make their own name. George, as proud as you are of the career, the fact that you spent it in one uniform, certain guys have mentioned that that's as big to them as anything else. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fantastic. But I was, you know, I was in a great situation. I was in a great time. I was in a great organization at the time. And, you know, if we were struggling with last place the last three or four or five years um, like the Royals have now, would I have spent 20 years here? God, I don't know. I would have to do some serious soul searching. But there was no place for me to go. We were a very competitive team. I came to the major leagues in 1973 for a month and a half, 74. And in 1975, we made a little run at the world champion Oakland A's. In 76, we won. 77, we won. 78, we won. 80, we won. 81, we won. 84, we won. 84. Well, where was I, where was I going to go? I can understand leaving for to go play for a winner, but I was already on a winning team. Uh, I can understand um, leaving to go make your fair amount of money, but I was already being paid a fair amount of money. So to me, Kansas City and I, it was just a perfect timing and a perfect marriage. Last thing for George Brett as we finish up. George, what's the first thing to really go physically on a player? What's the first thing to go mentally on a player? 
Oh, I think mentally, you just get mentally tired, uh, fatigued. Uh, I think the first thing that goes physically is, you, is uh, speaking from, from my career, was, uh, you know, I couldn't get around on fastballs as, as well as I once could. I made a living hitting the fastball, especially the fastball up, and they say you can't hit a high fastball. Well, I made a living hitting the high fastball, and all of a sudden, those ones I used to crush and the ones I used to hit real well, I wasn't hitting them anymore, and as a result, the average... Every year just got a little lower and lower and lower till it got to a point where I didn't think I was helping the team enough, and my personal pride wouldn't let me to go out and hit 260, 270. So, um, you know, if I could have maybe lifted weights like a lot of these guys do now, we never lifted weights when I played. It was kind of against the rules. But nowadays I think these guys are, if they want to, they can they're going to be able to play a lot longer because they're a lot stronger, and I think their bat's not going to slow down as fast as mine did. Well, George, I appreciate your time today. Long-range goals. I know you're with the Kansas City Royals right now, and I know you actually – Put a group together to buy the team. What is it you think 10 years from now you might be doing in and around the game of baseball? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'll even be uh, involved with the game 10 years from now. But, uh, you know, one thing, I'll always be a fan because the game's been too good to me. It's been too good to my family to uh, not to uh, not to come on out here and enjoy it. I brought my 9-year-old with me today. We're sitting up here with the general manager in a suite, and I'm teaching him how to keep score. And uh, I'm going to bring him to the Hall of Fame with me this summer. My nine-year-old and I are just going to take a little, you know, five, six-day trip, just the two of us, and um, take him around baseball and hopefully do the same with my seven-year-old when he gets nine and my six-year-old when he turns nine and just kind of spend time with them and, and uh, do things like that. I think it's a lot of fun. Do you cringe after reading some of the quotes about the possibility of what might happen at some point during this year or at the end of this year? Uh, I, I hopefully, hopefully everybody's learned from lessons past and as a result of that, uh, uh, some serious negotiating will start to be done real soon. All right, George, listen, I appreciate your time today. Thanks very much. Enjoy okay. the rest of the game, and uh, I appreciate what you've done. Okay, thanks. Have a great day. Charlie came up to me at the All-Star break and just said, George, I think you have a chance to play. I'm the only coach here that, that does. you got to give me your heart and believe me on this one, but if you change some things, I think you can survive at this level. Right now, you're not surviving. I just stayed with his program the rest of my career, and glad I did. He was a remarkable man. I put a lot of trust in him, and he basically put his reputation on the line for me. Brett went in hard, and both teams are out on the field. Brett went in hard at Nettles, and Nettles kicked him, and that's when the fight started. Billy Martin right in the middle trying to break it up. The Nettles didn't do anything, and, oh, there he did. Yep, he well, after, after Brett went into him, uh, Nettles kicked him, and here it goes here. Neither Brett nor Nettles thrown out of the ball game. Ground ball up the middle. Base hit! The Kansas City Royals are the 1985 World Champions. The question's been asked, what's your greatest moment in baseball? I always say winning the World Series because it doesn't matter who you are. If you're the clubhouse guy, if you're the ticket taker, the guy selling cotton candy, man, when that game's over, the fifth or seventh game of the World Series and you're part of a championship team, there's no better feeling in the world that you can experience in a baseball uniform.